On April 24th, the Supreme Court handed down two opinions in cases related to inter partes review. In a 7-2 decision, the court upheld the constitutionality of IPR in Oil States LLC versus Greens Energy Group LLC. Then, in SAS Institute v. Mattel, the court ruled 5-4 that the Patent Trial and Appeal Board must review all challenged IPR claims or none at all. Finnegan attorneys Rachel Emsley and Trenton Ward join us now to share their insight into these two very important cases. Trenton, why was the Supreme Court's decision in oil states such a big deal? This decision is significant in my mind because there were many that saw the oil states appeal as a means by which to abolish or at least significantly limit the importance of the PTAB's trial jurisdiction. But ultimately, the opposite occurred. As a result of the oil states' effort to abolish IPRs, we now have binding Supreme Court precedent that a patent is a matter involving public rights, namely the grant of a public franchise, and that Congress may set conditions and tests on this public franchise, such as inter partes review. So I agree with the commentary that we are likely to see future challenges to IPRs and other AI trials, but I think the parties can now be reasonably confident that these AI trials will remain part of the patent litigation landscape for some time to come. Trent, and I definitely agree with you. I think it was a surprise to me and to many that cert was granted in this case in the first place. We really had been dealing with post-grant review of patents after they're issued since 1980 with with re-examinations. And, you know, what we hear from our clients the most is that they're looking for predictability and certainty when it comes to their portfolios and when it comes to patent litigation risks. So when this was granted, there became this cloud hanging over inter partes review and perhaps all of the other types of post-grant review. And it became hard for some of our clients to advise management whether to file petitions or what risks there were in filing litigation. So although the result perhaps is a little anticlimactic, the proceedings are constitutional, it is significant because it removes that cloud and it provides perhaps some of the predictability and certainty that we're looking for. And to just put some perspective on things, it has become a big part of the equation when deciding whether to file a patent litigation and part of litigation strategy since 2012 when these first came into existence. And to date, we have over 7,600 petitions filed for IPRs. And then if you combine that with the other types of AIA trials, there are over 8,000 of them that have been filed. And with the institution rate standing at 51% and 19% having claims survive at the outcome, and the Federal Circuit affirming that around 72% of the time, arguably, although some maybe didn't like the result of these proceedings, it was providing some sort of predictability to the litigation game. With the decision saying that these are, these are here to stay, at least for the reasons that were presented in this case, I think there is some relief amongst our clients and everybody involved that we have that final word. Rachel, in a nutshell, on what basis did the Supreme Court deny the constitutionality challenge to IPRs? The constitutional question in this case was twofold. First, the question had to do with Article 3 of the Constitution, and that vests judicial power in the courts. Supreme Court precedent decided whether a proceeding involves the exercise of Article 3 judicial power based on whether it's a private or a public right at stake. So the question in this case in oil states became whether patents are private or public rights. The second constitutional question that oil states dealt with was whether 
IPR denies a patent owner of their Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. In a 7-2 majority with Justice Thomas writing and Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts dissenting, found that patents are actually squarely in the public rights doctrine. And there might have been some debate about that before this case came down. And now we know for sure that they are squarely public rights. And because they're public rights, the court decided that Congress can assign adjudication to other entities because they are public rights. In performing this analysis, the court explained that by issuing a patent, the patent office actually takes from public rights of immense value and bestows them upon the patentee. That's a quote. And they compared the issuance of patents to a franchise, and that would be like where Congress could grant a franchise permit to a company erecting a toll bridge or doing some other kind of work. With all of that established, the court looked back at the patent clause in our Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, and that gives Congress its authority to actually grant patents. And the court said that these adjudications, although they are after the issuance of patents, they are ensuring that the monopolies that these patents establish are within the legitimate scope. So the adjudication post-grant involves the same interests as granting the patent in the first place. Yeah, Rachel, I think this, the salient quote from the case, Thomas's statement that patents are a creature of statute law, I think that's probably something will be cited in a number of cases going forward. I also found it interesting that Justice Thomas specifically addressed the Supreme Court's precedent in McCormick. If you remember back for the oral argument, during the oral argument for this case, Justice Gorsuch turned to his panel members and attempted to persuade them that the matter at issue in the oil state's appeal was a matter that the Supreme Court had already decided and that it had been decided in a case from the 1800s, the McCormick decision. And he posited that that case found that patents can only be set aside by an Article III court. Justice Thomas addressed that specifically in the majority opinion and dismissed his colleague's line of logic by highlighting the fact that the McCormick decision was decided under the Patent Act of 1870. And that particular patent act did not include a provision for post-issuance administrative review, obviously contrary to the current statute that we're operating under, which does provide for post-issuance administrative review. Two Supreme Court justices dissented from this decision. Why was that? Well, as I mentioned, Justice Gorsuch made his position quite clear during the oral argument that he was in favor of unconstitutionality. So I think it was a pretty safe bet that you were going to at least get a dissent from any majority affirmance of IPR constitutionality from Justice Gorsuch. However, instead of just continuing the same sort of ask and answered line of logic that Justice Gorsuch had mentioned during the oral arguments, his dissenting opinion actually focuses on the broader concept and the idea that IPR, inter partes review, results in the loss of a right to an independent judge. So in my mind, I think perhaps Justice Gorsuch might have broadened his dissent, perhaps in an effort to curry the favor and the additional vote of his colleague, the Chief Justice. But in order to agree with Justice Gorsuch's logic, one must agree that the underlying assumption that Gorsuch makes in dissenting opinion that an Article I judge is not an independent judge, yet the assumption has to be uh, assumed to be true, and also that Article III provides the only method by which to attain uh, such an independent judge. Interestingly, though, Justice Gorsuch talked about in his dissent as well this idea of the dichotomy of patent right as a public law right or a private law right. And he 
said that until recently, most everyone considered an issued patent to be a personal right. Although he didn't come out and expressly state that he disagrees that an issued patent is a is a public right, but he does state one point in the dissenting opinion that there's a need for an Article III court to review a patent dispute because a patent is a social contract between the patentee and society, uh, which to me seems to indicate that uh, patents should be more properly considered as a public right. I agree with Trenton that the real tenor of the dissent was a concern for judicial independence. Although the dissent spent a lot of time delving into the historical patent challenges in the 18th century in England to try to discern the original intent of the Constitution and of the patent system in the United States. With respect to judicial independence, Justice Gorsuch expresses two particular concerns that we saw foreshadowed during the oral argument. The first is the significant investment in invention and the patenting process, a concern that um, inventors and perhaps even smaller inventors, smaller companies are are investing heavily in getting a patent, and, and this is apparently not a guarantee that that right is going to last forever. And the second is a concern about panel stacking. This came up during oral argument and as a way of referring to the situation at the board where the director is allowed to select who will hear a particular patent challenge and also can, on rehearing, add other selected members to the panel, including himself. The concern is that with the director being a political appointee, that this is really just an overreaching of the executive branch. Will the decision in oil states have any impact on patent law outside of the context of IPRs? Arguably no, but practically yes. And maybe I can explain that a little bit. The conclusion at the end of the oil state's majority decision carefully emphasized the narrowness of its holding. And they emphasized that it was only to the precise constitutional questions that were presented by oil states in this case. And these were in the context of an IPR. So the question of whether covered business method review or CBM is constitutional or whether post-grant reviews, PGRs or ex parte re-exams were constitutional, that was not squarely before the court and they were careful to carve that out. But although there are some differences in those proceedings from IPRs, they're similar in very relevant ways. So practically speaking, I think that oil states will stifle the same questions coming up in those contexts. For example, they have the same relief provided to the petitioner, meaning that whether the relief to the petitioner in these proceedings is the cancellation of the patent or cancellation of certain claims, if the petitioner can show that they didn't meet the statutory requirements for issuance in the first place. Also, the decision was founded on the fact that a patent is a public right. And so at issue in these other proceedings is, of course, patents, and that doesn't change. So this similarity is relevant to the key components of the decision, and I just don't think that you're likely then to see the same challenge for other post-grant proceedings. Yeah, and Rachel, I'd add to that. I think that the point about the definitive classification of patents as a grant of a public franchise is something I see having the potential to bleed into uh, many other court decisions and perhaps not decisions even limited to AIA trials or post-grant administrative review. For example, I think that it might be possible that the determination that a patent is a public franchise is something that would be important to, say, cases that are evaluating an injunction 
or really any case that involves weighing the public interest as well. Something that came to mind for me is disputes over venue, especially post-TC Heartland. One of the factors that the court is weighing is the public interest. It seems like that could be affected by the definitive classification of the patent as a public franchise. Does the oil state's decision leave open any avenues for further challenges to IPRs or other AIA trials? Yes. Justice Thomas identifies that oil states did not raise a due process challenge. Also, Justice Thomas expressly states in the majority opinion that oil states did not challenge the retroactive application of inter partes review. And in view of those two statements, I would not be surprised to see future disgruntled parties challenging either IPRs or other AI trials as improper denials of due process, or perhaps as well an improper taking of a patent asset. And Justice Thomas specifically identified that patents are property for purposes of the due process clause and the takings clause. So for other AIA trials, we know that the sunset for covered business method review is coming soon in 2020, and we might be running out of time for such a challenge, but some patent owners in those proceedings have argued that those are constitutionally improper for a different reason. In CBM, the legislation carves out a special subset of patents for special treatment. Those used in the practice, administration, or management of a financial product or service and not directed to a technological invention. So patent owners there have argued that that carve out is not proper. I think that we're likely to see that question bubble up soon. And as Trenton mentioned, due process is definitely a fertile ground left open by the opinion. I think that the PTAB, the board, is really tuning in now to due process issues. Early on, we had, the majority of us had experiences where it was very difficult to secure additional briefing on various issues or to get certain discovery. And now the board seems to be allowing parties a little bit more latitude. I don't know if that's because of what they heard during the oral hearing in oil states or if some of the decisions that are coming out of the federal circuit mentioning potential due process issues are getting a little bit of the board's ear. But in any case, we're seeing things change a little bit. But as is always the case with due process, there's a tension in determining how much process is due. From my perspective, that's where the PTAB will continue to struggle. They have a congressional mandate to conclude trial within one year, and this is always mounting a huge pressure on the board. It makes it difficult to let everything happen in a way that all of the parties would agree is fair. So due process is always going to come up when a party feels aggrieved by the situation where the board is clamping down and trying to get things done in perhaps a more speedy way at the expense of the interests of one of the parties. So I think that we can expect to see many attempts to raise due process appeals following the oil state's decision, especially where the court particularly carved that out as something that's possible following the decision. It makes you think that perhaps there's some concern there about the proceedings that they're not fully articulating. And finally, in addition to its significant decision in oil states, the Supreme Court simultaneously released a decision in SAS Institute. Can you briefly summarize what happened in that case? Sure. The Supreme Court reversed a federal circuit decision permitting the board to render a final written decision in an IPR on less than all of the claims that the petitioner challenged. And this decision raises a huge array of questions about how the board's going to comply with the Supreme Court's reading of the statute. The PTO on 
April 26th, issued its first guidance. They say that they'll now institute as to all claims or none. And for pending trials where there was a partial institution, parties can expect an order supplementing the institution decision. In those cases, there may be additional time, briefing, or discovery and argument. And it also might be necessary to extend that 12-month statutory deadline if it's on the near horizon. Yeah, Rachel, this is a complex problem, and it's going to take a while for both the board and the, the parties in each of the cases to sort it out. Regardless, if oil states is seen as confirming the legitimacy of IPRs, then I think that SAS should be seen as broadening their impact. Previously, most district courts would not have stopped a petitioner's challenges to validity that were denied institution by the PTAB. So challenges that were subject to an institution denial could have been brought again in district court litigation. If we now find ourselves in an environment in which the board is instituting on all grounds in a petition, then perhaps that is going to expand the scope of estoppel associated with that. So the only likely result from SAS at this point is that we're going to see more binding disputes with respect to patentability occurring before the PTAB instead of other tribunals. Our guests have been Rachel Emsley and Trenton Ward, attorneys at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.